Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Punch, Kick, Choke Chat. My name is Sean Benson, and I'm one of your hosts, and I'm so excited to jump in with our guest tonight, Grandmaster Alex Atkinson. Um, Sensei, I want to jump right in with a question that's on your Black Belt Institute website, and I think all of us are going to appreciate talking about this. You talk about Imagine Miyagi meets Cobra Kai as the way you like to think uh, of a way to build your students, and I want to ask you what you mean by that and then crack into a bit of the fun of that. Well, let me let me... It kind of explained my my son now is carrying on just like uh, Rick Joslin, uh, Jeff Joslin. He's carrying it on on the club. He went into the club, and his clientele is is a much younger group. So really, my interpretation of it, you know, it's really his interpretation. So that's a question you would have to ask him. Okay. Yeah. So. Right on, and. Um... <laughs> Do, do you think about those that that film at all? Do, do, do those two characters, or do, does that mean anything at all, or, or should we just move on from that? Uh, you know, it it was great for the industry, the movie. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we should just move on from that one. Okay, sweet. So, so let me ask you about something else you've got up there. And again, maybe this is something more about your son. But yeah. you know, all all the people that the success they've had after becoming black belts. You know, you talk yeah. about people on television, WWE superstars, like that kind of thing. What do you think it is about the path to a black belt that prepares somebody for the kind of success that the you know the people you've had described? Well, you know, I, probably the best way to describe it is I, that I had a student one time, and, and you know we you know we teach and, and we don't really get a lot of feedback, and I and I and I, and I trained them for uh, like a number of years, and he got to about a third degree black belt. But he sent me a letter one time, and uh, it was after he graduated from law school. And what he said to me was, he said, you know, he remembers the lessons that we had. And so while, while he was going through law school and everything they threw at him and how hard it was, was easy compared to what we threw at him. So I guess what happens is in order to, to get a black belt, you actually have to do more than just study more than anything you've got to dig down with everything you've got find something uh, something else just to move forward all the time so we trained them hard it was easy Lasco was a breeze for him so right on i want to go around the horn on that we love to open up our first topic to everybody sensei dofan let me throw that to you what is it about preparing for a black belt that makes other things in your life easy well it's just it's hard and it's uncomfortable it should be hard and it should be uncomfortable. Like if you're going into your black belt test thinking, I got this, this is a piece of cake. I'm going to sail through this. So I just think that, and then I think the more you can pressure test your mind and your body, then other things it's easier. Like people have asked me, how can you stand in front of the board of governors at uh, the university of Waterloo and address them all? Part of it is because I got a black belt and I went through that test. And so then it's easy to stand in that room and look at everybody and say, I got kind of got this. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Sensei Sweeney? I know you like the term pressure test. Yes, pressure test or stress test, um, you know, whether that be martial arts or anything else. And I think once you start identifying with yourself with that, it makes it a lot easier, you know, um, uh, whether it is, um, okay, I, you know, I'm not good at karate, but I'm going to go fight a, a go down right now. Uh, you, Sean, or, <laughs> or, um, or, uh, you know, just something that that's uncomfortable. You learn to, you become a person who says, okay, I see the risks inherent in this. I know how to deal with those. I'm going to go into it. Right. And it's the same thing standing in front of a huge crowd. 
you know, say, okay, I got an adrenaline. I'm, you know, uh, I've done this before. Once, once having fought, I know how to fight again. And I think that's one of the things that martial arts really does well for you. Um, Hanshi, what about you? What, what about becoming a black belt makes other things in life easier? Well, you know, you, uh, you get scared. It's a type of being scared because you want to pass. You want to, you want to be a black belt. And again, it's not an easy path and you understand that. And you reach deeper inside of yourself than you ever have before. And I, I find that that's, that's where you become successful. You have to reach down inside. Nobody else can help you become successful. You, you have to do it yourself. Martial arts is a way of doing that. That's why a guy like me who was um, a bit of a rounder out in the street somewhere, once I, I looked for something and I reached for martial arts, it changed my life completely. Um, I just want to chip in on one thing that we were talking about before the cameras are on. For people uh, who are watching tonight, you'll get this. If you're watching later, we've got a snowstorm in Toronto. There's ice on the roads. It's nuts out there. And Sensei Dauphin was joking. It's about 138th in the list of how bad we've driven to karate in. Like, it's not that bad. And for me, the big thing is consistency. Like, to become a black belt, I had to drive and find my teachers one, one and a half or two hours away at minimum. And then that made just even driving in a night like tonight. It's like, we've done this a hundred times just to go learn a little. Just so um, you know, I said 168th. 168th. <laughs> Let me write that down so I get that right for the, uh, when we edit it back in with me saying the right number. Um, so, so let's go back to this idea of, of becoming a black belt. Um, and I want to crack open a topic for you, um, Grandmaster, and then also for you, Hanchi Legacy. When you, um, Sense Atkinson, got your black belt in the 70s, do you think what it took to prepare and become one at that time has changed drastically? Uh, yeah, well, yes and no, you know, because yes, you know, I mean, it, that was a big thing. And then right away, we started looking at the next one. And, you know, we were, I've always looked forward. So never really looked pa past that. And even even today, you know, the, the training isn't so much about looking past, but like, what's coming up next? You know, like, this uh, martial arts change, it evolves, it, it's like a living organism. And just trying to keep up with it and discovering new things is, you know, that's that's what, what it is more about than looking back at these things. I, I still do four courses every year that are, you know, either, you know, have to do with health and fitness and sports training, uh, coaching. Um, so for me, I still haven't hit the end of the path on that one. The black belt was just a start. Mm -hmm. Um, Anshi, what do you think? Somebody who got their black belt in the 70s in 1972 or 73, were they prepared differently and for different things in the world? Um, a little bit. I agree with uh, Sensei Atkinson. Uh, uh, Benny Allen was my sensei, so he was rough on us. It was fairly physical, you know, like that. But along the path, uh, we do martial arts is changing forever, all the time hopefully uh, getting better. If you make your students better than you, then martial arts will be better. But I think that we're the generations, uh, uh, Sensei Atkinson and myself, and possibly Sensei Suino, uh, uh, we're the generation that changed everything in a way. Because in my case, I didn't have a 
one style sensei who came from a one style. Was, in those early years, we were given a bunch of different things from different styles. And then when we got in, realized that they were styles. And uh, for instance, I myself went in the Okinawan Shoren Ruwei, and other people went Shotokan, Jiu-Jitsu, whatever way it was. And there is more in that sense, because we carry the tradition of many, many teachers and the ideas of many, many teachers. Whereas back in the day of Benny Allen, or Sensei, um, my first Sensei, there wasn't any of that. It was just mm -hmm. fighting and some kata, fighting and some kata, the philosophy and uh, the way of the art from the old days was never there. So thanks, Anshi. Uh, and then, so that makes me want to then pivot to Sensei Suino. So Sensei Suino, you know, judo, when you got, let's say your black belt would have had a little bit more of a direct lineage, unlike what Hanshi's talking about, right? With the, um, and so then how does that feel uh, getting a black belt in the seventies versus people who are preparing for it today? Ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, the experience itself was different. Um, I know that, for example, the legacy Shurenru Shodan test is pretty extreme. Um, my old style of karate many years ago uh, was Shorinru. And um, also in my early judo days, we had three and four and five hour tests. Um, the tests are kinder and gentler, um, but uh, uh, a lot more of the thinking of different martial arts has crept into every martial art that I'm exposed to now, right? So um, you can't do judo these days without understanding a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu or some wrestling or mm -hmm. some catch catch fighting. Um, you gotta, you, uh, and, and, and the principles are brought in, um, not only the martial arts principles, but some of the philosophical principles are brought in. So it's interesting, the, the, the martial arts are evolving and um, they're becoming more uh, international or eclectic. I don't know, quite know what the term is. I just don't see it as being isolated. It's not one dojo that you'd never leave anymore. Mm -hmm. And Sensei Dauphin, let, let's finish this question with you because you know you've been at this here in your fourth decade, and, and you've obviously seen changes. So, so what do you think about that preparation and even that new topic that's popped up a little of, you know, the influence of other arts more or less than when you started? Mm. I guess I'm a bit of a throwback, Sean. Like I, I use the same words as Sensei Legacy when a white belt comes in here and I teach him Hajidachi. I say put your toes and heels together, bend your knees, step your right foot out in a semicircle cross. Like, I, I guess when you come here, maybe it's a throwback to, I joined in 1989. So maybe it's a throwback to 1989. I'm happy when Sensei Legacy was talking about it, that he didn't say in 1989, he was a kinder, gentler sensei. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't remember that. Um, he's good. He was a great, he's a great sensei and he always was a great sensei. But uh, one of the things I always appreciated him was that he put you under pressure. There is, there is uh, consequences to making mistakes that were both physical and mental. And I think that needs to exist. And when you come here anyway, that that's how it is. I mean, maybe the training is a bit more scientific sometimes because there's more information, but yeah, I try and keep it as old school as I possibly can. Even if you're a little kid, I like to think I throw a bucket of water out and you get as wet as you want to. <clears throat> right on. Um, 
ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. I'm going to uh, introduce my co-hosts, and then Sensei Dauphin is going to get way more specific, introduce our guests, and then Sensei Atkinson, we're really going to dig into your life. Thanks for that opening, everybody. Um, so I'd like to introduce Sensei <coughs> Mandy Dauphin, who was just speaking. He's a seventh degree black belt in legacy Shoranru Karate Jitsu, as well as a seventh degree black belt in Hakatsuru White Crane. And he is a fourth degree black belt in Muso Jikiden Ishinryu Iaido. That rank was given to him by Sensei Niklaus Suino, who founded the Japanese Martial Arts Center, is an eighth dan in Muso Jikiden Ishinryu Iaido, as well as a sixth dan in Judo and Jiu Jitsu. And Hanchi Gary Legacy is a 10th degree black belt in both Hakatsuru White Crane as well as Legacy Shoranru Karate Jitsu, which he is the founder of, and he is also a black belt in the Ido. Sensei Dolphin, tell us everything about our guest. Well, I can't tell you everything because that's what that's here for. <laughs> that would just be me talking for the entire time. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm really happy to talk about uh, Sensei Atkinson, and he joined karate or not karate actually it was judo in september 16th 1963 that's when he started in martial arts and it was old, his older brother who actually bought him a membership to a judo club and that's how he got into martial arts he also trained with kwai wong for a while and then when he started karate it was with uh, the chong brothers uh so he's in that soroka lineage and that's who he got his black belt in karate from, was from uh, the Chong brothers. Uh, he opened his first school in 1973, and it was in a church basement. Uh, Sensei Atkinson is also a 10th degree black belt. So we have two 10th ends on the call today. Um, he's trained in many different styles, including Shotokan, Kenpo Karate, Judo, Five Animals, Kung Fu, Kickboxing, Jiu Jitsu. And there's a lot more, but we don't need to go on. He's a lifetime martial artist. Um, he's also a multi-time uh, international champion in both Kumite and Kata. Uh, like Sense Legacy, he's a member of the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame. Also like his brother, who was just inducted um, at the last one. In 1980, Sensei Atkinson founded the Black Belt Institute. And that's a family-focused and competitive school. And Sean mentioned it. I really like that it said Cobra Kai with Mr. Mm -hmm. Miyagi values. Like to me, that's like <laughs> that has that has the toughness and uh, the philosophy, which I really like. Um, in 2010, Sensei Atkinson returned uh, to the sport, competitive sport, and he became an official certification in kickboxing. And he's been one of the most uh, active officials with the Waco Canada. And actually, that's we just talked to him a couple of weeks ago when Alden was fighting. Um, I want to add a footnote that in 2018, uh, Sensei Atkinson, with his really close friend, who we all know as well, uh, Veronica DeSantos, uh, they took on the major responsibility of building the tatami division of Waco in Canada. And it was interesting. I'd never seen it before, but when I was there, I thought it was really neat to see. And I, I think it was really valuable. Uh, that's a really valuable con contribution to uh, uh, combat sports. Um, so then I always like to give my thoughts, Sensei Atkinson, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I really, that stands out to me is you come from a martial arts family and it's in your blood. It's not just you, like it, it was always around you and you were always doing it. Um, you know, your older brother slamming you around to show off for the, the girls. That's, you know, 
that's the first cut, right? Um, uh, I learned a lot from watching the episode with uh, our friend Charles Banfield on Karate Connects because uh, Sensei Atkinson has been on that show as well. So I learned a lot from watching that. Here's something that really stood out to me. On his website, under the qualification section, it just simply says 10th Dan. Right? Like, <laughs> that kind of says it all, right? Like, what, what are your qualifications, 10th Dan? That's it. That's perfect. Um, Sensei Atkinson, Sensei Legacy says that if you stop doing martial arts under 30 years, you're a quitter. And so your next year for you, you'll be two times not a quitter because you'll, <laughs> you'll be hitting 60 years next year, which is amazing. Um, I like what you said on, uh, on Karate Connects about, you know, your black belt is your BA. You're highly educated. You've hit that level. You're knowledgeable. Um, but also you need to be teachable still when you're a black belt. You can't be not teachable. I really like that. That resonated with me. Um, I also think every time I've seen you or talked to you, you're a very approachable person. And uh, I really, I always value that when people are accessible that have knowledge and experience. And uh, the last thing I want to say is something that you said that I've heard Sensei Legacy say a lot, which really stood out to me is um, when you were talking about combat, um, you said you need to be one of the best chess players, right? And mm -hmm. I, I, I like that. Not a checkers player, a chess player strategy. You need to be able to move all the pieces around the board. And that, Sean, is my introduction for Sensei Atkinson. And I'm super excited to be chatting with him tonight. Thanks so much, Sensei. Don't I'm going to do some really quick housekeeping for the people watching. We're so excited you're here. If you're watching in real time with us on Zoom, then we're going to light up the button at the bottom of the screen so that you can drop your questions in. Um, for Sensei Atkinson. And if you're watching uh, asynchronously, you're listening on a podcast or you're watching on YouTube later, smash that subscribe and like button. We're really happy you're here and we really appreciate you following our show. And the last thing is you're watching five adults have a conversation. If there's any content you don't enjoy, just uh, call your sensei and complain to them because we're going to keep chatting as we like. Sensei Atkinson, we're so grateful you're here. Um, we're going to throw you the first question that, that we like to ask uh, most of our guests, which is, what was it like for you growing up and what brought you into your first dojo? Well, uh, as you heard, it was my brother and uh, he bought me a, a membership for my birthday. So, and so I went in and I thought I had the best big brother all time. Right. But a uh, little after I, I found out that uh, about a week and a half into it, I started my Uki training. <laughs> so he you know he would bring a girl back to the house and he would push the furniture away from from in the living room and then proceed to throw me across the room <laughs> and his answer with the with, with the girls were always the same thing oh don't worry he knows how to fall <laughs> mm. <laughs> so that's pretty well how I, I got started with it um we went from there I mean we we got into the competitions of course and so uh, the actual instructor in, the, in our dojo was a um, jiu-jitsu man, a guy named John Fisher. And uh, he, he, he got his black belt in jiu-jitsu at, at Frank Atasha's club. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, with the judo. 
but back then we were too young they they wouldn't train a they wouldn't train anybody who was under 16 any jujitsu so what we used to do is we had a little warm-up um dojo in the basement so while the jujitsu classes were going on you could hear the slapping on the floor and so we we you know we knew what they were doing and then when it stopped we went back up got a new technique and we would go back down and practice the technique so uh, you know they always say the dojo takes care of themselves well they decided to bring us up one day and, and teach us a lesson but we were really too young and too stupid to know what they were doing so they they literally would try to throw us across the 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 dojo and there was one guy there his name was gord he was big gord through threw us across so far we thought it was the greatest thing we came back and said that i've never gone that far can we do it again <laughs> so, so that's how we really got started in it and we we enjoyed it and we went to all the tournaments and we had a blast with it so um well one of the ways i like to phrase you know the next part of the question is like what brought you into that dojo and what kept you there and then oh. um we really love to ask you know you mentioned your Gord, like, are there any names of people in those early couple of years? I mean, this is such an era. I mean, we're cracking back into the early mid sixties. So yes. are there people whose names you want to shout out? Are there vibes you got from people that, you know, you, you they kept you there and that made you thrive? I, I think it's like any club, you know, it's the camaraderie in the club and, and being part of a, a family or a community that, that, that keeps you there. I mean, we never really even thought about not, going i i uh, i worked next door at um uh, at, at one of the restaurants and after school in the, in the dinner we i would do dishes and you know because that's you were a kid have a you know a burger and a coke and then head over to the club and and train so i, I we didn't really know anything else I, you know we just we just knew we just had a lot of fun and and you know i mean that's what we did and then are there any uh, people, you, you know, you look back on and go, wow, I can't believe I was in the same room with them or. Well, you know, there's a name that, that, that was at the same the club at the same time. It was a guy named Steve Chapman. And some people know Steve Chapman, Steve, you know, because he was an amazing jujitsu man. And he really was. And he said something to me once before. We, uh, we, he, he graded for his black belt in, um, with Ron Yamanaka in karate years later I, I caught up with him because I was a kid he was an adult so he was in the jiu-jitsu class so he's a little bit older than myself of course and we got talking and different things and he said you know my jiu-jitsu really came together when he started losing using uh, learning the katas and it was really interesting because uh, you know all the body movements and everything used to striking he made a relationship on how they would do with grappling and it, it was really interesting. He was a very interesting guy. Lots of guys still know him because he's been around forever. Uh, you know, he's not as high profile as a lot of people because he just goes about his business. But an excellent, excellent jujitsu man, excellent karate man. So, so this seems like a fun time to ask something that, you know, um, it's come up once or twice on our show. But because we have um, some Brazilian jujitsu guys on this call and some traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. Talk to us a little about the difference between the jiu-jitsu you were doing, the traditional Japanese, and, and what traditional Japanese has become versus a BJJ. Um, I, you know, I don't know if the, the, the BJJ, they, they, what they do is they do a lot, they do a lot of sports stuff too. 
right? So competitions, but there was no competitions back at that time. So I think that might be one of the big differences because, you know, you get to, you know, a lot of that stuff lands up on the ground. And if you, if you can't work on the ground, you know, you're, you're in trouble. And that was one of the greatest things about the experience of actually being doing judo for so many years is that you learn how to get on the ground and protect yourself, not get into trouble. So I think that might be the biggest difference. You know, you don't see this, you know, it's like if you're doing MMA and uh, once you hit the ground, <coughs> you know, it's side mount, mount, rear mount, right? So uh, this is how you score points. So obviously you, you've got to get into those positions. Mm -hmm. uh, the submissions, the, you know, once you get submitted, you know, the, all the striking doesn't, doesn't count for anything. So uh, it's, it's really interesting. So I think that may be the big difference. Right on. Um, Sensei Suino, let me throw that to you. What's your perspective on that as someone who dabbles in one and is a master of another? Uh, you're asking about the differences between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Japanese Jiu-Jitsu? Yeah, and also um, a bit of the difference between Japanese Jiu-Jitsu going back in time till now, if, if you perceive one from when you started. Uh, yes. So, so uh, Japanese Jiu-Jitsu sort of has the same evolution as uh, martial arts in general, and that is that it's practiced in a pretty kinder and gentler way. Um, some of the old school stuff was ukemi on a wood floor, uh, 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 drop, drop and tap fast, right? Like uh, there was, it was unforgiving. Um, or learning tombo, tombo jutsu, you know, having an old sensei locking you up with a with an eighteen inch wooden stick, at, uh, which has no nerve endings. Uh, that's all old school stuff, and it was very painful um, and and uh, unfriendly. Although, of course, we loved it. Um, so modern jujitsu practice in the Japanese sense is a lot, is, is, is less painful, at least in the schools that I train in. But it's also, um, it's also I would say, as a rule, 80% stand-up and only 20% groundwork, mm. whereas the Brazilian jujitsu is, you know, 90 plus yeah. percent groundwork. That's the biggest difference. Right on. Um, so let me bring this back, Sensei Atkinson. So, uh, talk to us a little before we get in. I want I want to get into your competition, but um, what brought you into striking arts as a guy who'd started out with the jiu-jitsu and the judo? You know, it, it's it's the old story. You know, if you're if you're training in in judo, you're wondering what it's like to get punched in the face, and if you're <laughs> you know if you're training karate, you're wondering what it's like to be dropped on the concrete. So. You know, it was that, and you know, you you, you saw, you know, you, you saw a lot of the karate and the kung fu stuff, and it it looked interesting, and it was it was it it was fun, um, and it, it's evolved into you know a lot of ring sports now and everything, and the truth of the matter is, is it's a, there's a real science to it, mm. you know, like you know, you might you might be as simplistic as as being able to punch instead of just being able to choke somebody, but at the end of the day, they, you know, there's a huge science to it. So. Um, so talk to us about that period where you're starting to get a handle on things. You're, you're, you're hitting that mid late sixties into your set into the seventies and what that journey is for you with competition and other arts you're starting to study. Well, you know, we, we never really thought about, like we thought of always competitions. So, I mean, we were, you know, judo right away. They, they, it was, you know, a, virtually a form that came from jujitsu to to the, the gentle way to to do sport. Um, 
karate is, you know, if, if you're looking at Japanese karate, it's more sport oriented, say, than of the Okinawans. Okinawans, they, they love the self-defense. So, so, you know, competitions were just, you know, just somewhere where you could test your skill levels against, you know, somebody else. And, and it's a real learning process because, you know, some, some of those lessons are real tough, uh, you know, because, you know, some of them stick with if a week after you, the competition and then other times they're not so tough so so that so the competition part of it was there for you right from the beginning you're young you want to just compete see how you do yeah. against the other people and it's a process you know like like you know yeah understanding the competition is a process and it's not uh you know no you know I, i've always heard of the guy that wins right off the bat and wins all the time but i've never seen a guy with a perfect record so mm. i've seen guys with perfect records after they turn pro but I haven't seen one be necessarily before they turn pro. So. Right on. Um, so I'm going to start to um, ask you about some names. Partly, you know, I wrote my NEEDAN essay on the history of karate uh -oh. in Canada and more specifically Ontario. And, and one of the names that, you know, came up in Sensei Dauphin's um, intro about you was Soroka. And that's somebody who, you know, we haven't had a ton of guests with direct contact and did you have that uh, or was that just through the Chong brothers? Do you want to talk about that for us? Well, from, from that, like the Chong brothers, we had, you know, one who, who was the Kung Fu and one who was the Karate and the big Dave and little Dave and little Dave was, uh, he trained with Soroka. He trained around the time with, you know, when Monty Guest was there and, uh, you know, like the most senior students. And so when they opened up the Canadian Karate Kung Fu, they decided that, uh, you know, you know, Dave, Dave was really, he was really sharp when it came to the business of martial arts. So he, he thought, well, you know, we'll have karate here and we'll have Kung Fu and we'll, we'll, we'll cover all the market, all the markets. Right. So, and that's how it happened. And uh, training with both of them, you had, you, you had a really big influence because, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, you, you had the soft style, you had the hard style, right. At your fingertips all the time. So. And did you work through both with them? Um, I've worked with both of them. Yeah. 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 You know, they were, we, you know, it was a long haul sometimes to Chinatown all the time, but you know, you, you find, you know, you, you put a lot, you put a lot of, back then it was miles on your cars, but, uh, you put a lot of kilometers on them, took buses, took subways. I got there any way I could. Yeah. yeah so. And did you spend any time with, uh, Soroka? Um, I did through Monty more, mm. you know, like I went to a couple of the Soroka camps and stuff like that, but. As you guys know, Monty guesses, you know, he's the, the nicest person in the world. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he, I did probably more training it through his place because he always had that open invitation to anybody. And uh, I mean, he had some amazing people working out of his dojo on Eglinton. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, all right. And then there's two more people I want to ask you about. One who I got the chance to sit down with and had an incredible chat with. And his name's come up, but maybe not enough on the show is, is Kwai Wong. Yeah, I, that was a really short, short uh, thing for me. Um, you know, I lived in Scarborough. He lived in Scarborough. Like yeah. He had his club in Scarborough. I went over there to join and joined up and spent some time there. But then uh, initially, you know, I, I met the Chongs and, and that was it. So right on. Yeah. So. And then um, what about uh, Hanchi Legacy's um, second sensei, Sensei Benny Allen? Did you spend time with him? Uh, not not with Benny Allen, but lots of people that went through Benny Allen's, uh, you know, I mean, Benny was an icon when, uh, for us, right? When, uh, 
he was uh, the, one of the senior guys. And Ron Yamanaka and I got together. We we did the um, IT Kempo schools and the advisory on it to give you some kind of a perspective of the access of people, good people that you had. I think when I looked at it, there was uh, the access on that club. Those clubs was Monty Guest was an advisor. The Chongs were advisors. I think even Mo Chow was uh, one of the advisors on it as well. Um, uh, Bob Daglish was one of the advisors on it. Uh, and then uh, eventually he became one of the, the um, co-members of it, right? So, right. so, so this, lots, of, lots of access to, to iconic people back then. So Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. What I would do for a little 50-year time machine just to go meet yeah. some people. Um, so a question actually that I think is really appropriate now, they came in from Robert Shlomsky, part of our PKCC team. Um, and this goes to, you know, the idea that you're training two different styles in one school and you've got two other styles at the judo and jiu-jitsu school. What's the benefit of cross-training martial arts? What is the right balance of learning multiple art versus focusing on mastering one? Well, you know, it's interesting because I never thought of it that way as, as different arts. Um, I think if we went back far enough in history, we would find that, you know, that, that it wasn't mixed martial arts to start with. And I think people broke it up in, you know, in different ways over, over, over centuries. Um, that's my personal thought. I never really thought of it as a, a difference because I, you know, I, you know, you're, if you're hard and rigid or you're soft and flowing, if you're soft and flowing, you got to learn how to be hard with it and rigid. And then if you're hard and rigid, you got to learn how to be soft. So. I never really ever looked at it that way. I've never looked at differences, but I've always looked at the similarities. And it really makes it easier to make the transition be uh, with everything. Like, you know, you, you try to figure out what kind of, uh, you know, um, a creature you are. Like if, if you're doing it, say, competition, you know, it's like a quarterback in the NFL. Some of them sit in a pocket and they, they let their blockers and other ones like to, uh, you know, Free, free run and so you got to find out which one you are which what your best tools are uh which are your best tools of, in certain situations right so i never really thought of it like as a different art i always thought of it as just part of what you are you know love that i'm going to um, throw it to sensei dolphin we're going to go around the horn on this because it's such a good topic to break into a little sensei dolphin what about cross training and the right balance between mastering one versus trying a few uh i don't know i've only really ever done two arts most of it Ru, and then ishinryu yado and uh yeah so i've recently started to mess around with bjj which is a lot of fun um i don't know i i don't know how to answer the question uh specifically because I, I don't think I have enough knowledge to answer that. I've just, in 1989, I joined Legacy Sharon Rue. I've been doing Legacy Sharon Rue ever since. Um, I've gone to seminars and things like that, but not, I can't say I have expertise in other things that, that would allow me to speak to that question authoritatively. Right on. Sensei Sweena, what do you think? Can you uh, reframe the question for me? I will. I'll, I'll read it as it is, because actually I want to chip in and I think the wording matters. What's the benefit of cross-training martial arts and what's the right balance of learning multiple arts versus focusing on mastering one? 
Well, the benefit of cross-training martial arts, there are many of them. One is you have a wider selection of techniques to use in, the, in self-defense or in competition. Um, what's fascinating or interesting to me about it is how principles, core thematic ideas exist in different martial arts. So what's fascinating to me about it is if I don't, if I'm not going to try to become a, a, an expert or a 10th down in a martial art, I can still study it and have it and have it inform my understanding of principles that are in the martial arts. I do want to become a 10th down in. Um, uh, there's always a danger in that, right? It's easy to be a jack of all trades and, and a master of none. And, um, and uh, you know, I think in some ways, if it were up to me, people wouldn't go to an MMA class first. They would go to a karate class or a jujitsu class or a judo class, and they'd do that for a decade. And then they would become MMA if, if that's the way they wanted to go. I just think mm-hmm. it's a better a better approach to develop a core set of skills in one martial art with one really good instructor before you branch out. But that's just me. Right on. Hanchi Legacy, benefit of multiple arts and what's the right balance of learning a few versus mastering one? Well, a couple of things. People are different, right? So it depends what they're looking for. And explained to me by Anthony Sandoval, my sensei, it takes you at least 35 years to become a master. And there's a mixture there, but I don't want to go through that, especially in our style. But uh, understanding more about your own art is you go outside of it and look in. Like the, and it's good for you for self-defense when you're, uh, or when you're competing, that you get a bit of a taste of the other arts. But personally, I believe in Shore and Rue. I believe in one art maybe it's just myself because i may not have the capacity to learn a whole bunch of different arts so i um i say there is a benefit but uh, i focus myself on one art and try to make that my path while learning a bit about others so i can understand what i'm doing more or why i would be doing what i'm doing if i'm facing someone else because uh uh, the, the Okinawans, you know, had a lot of uh, street-level experience, so it's not quite like competition, mm-hmm. you know. So, to me, I'm a shore and root guy, and I learned a lot about different stuff. And for the 52-plus years that I've been learning anything, I've mainly been learning shoreland. Thanks, Hanchi. Um, Robert, I just want to say real quick for me, because I, I, I do have a, a thought or two on this. The benefit of cross training is to make my art better. Like I started doing jujitsu because I was watching Randy Couture in the MMA. And I was like, oh, because of his Greco-Roman wrestling, he can actually fight closer into the pocket than I'm willing to when I spar stand up. So I actually wanted to be comfortable going to the ground so that I could sit in the pocket better for stand up. And then for me, the right balance of learning multiple arts is as long as they're still furthering my central art. Uh, that, that's really just where I go with it. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it because this isn't about me, but this actually throws us into some questions that sort of complement one another, Sensei Atkinson. Um, so this is from Mark Altamar, and then I'm going to read one from Sensei Copeland as well, and you can riff. Um, so for Mark Altamar, my question is in regards to the similarities and differences between Kumite and Kata. As one who's so inco- accomplished in both, you, I'm wondering if you can compare and contrast. 
For example, do you think you're better at one or the other? Do you enjoy one more than the other? Do you think the skill sets are the same or different? And Sensei Copeland's question was, hello, sir, in your days of kumite or competition, did you prefer kata or kumite? A very interesting question. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just go and answer kata first, all right? Um, which one I preferred? Uh, I preferred both of them. And uh, let me explain why. See, kata is a really interesting thing. And, and how we frame things, you know, we express in everything that we do. So if I'm performing kata in a competition, and again, the operative word is performing, which is the word I usually frame it when you're doing katas or demonstrations, because you're, it, it's a performance. And so when you do a performance with it, it's different. Now, if you're training the, the actual um, self-defense portion of a kata, it changes because it has a different purpose. So anytime you're, 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 you're training in anything, if you're training, say, for kata for, for, um, for competition, you're performing a kata. When you're doing it for, with the bunkai and your interpretation of the move, it's self-defense related. And therefore, what happens is that it covers all the distance. So like if you were, if you're, for lack of a different way, you're pulling a parry with somebody's arm, slipping underneath, throwing an elbow in, you're moving in closer. All right. Now, if you're, if you're, if you're controlling their lead hand and you're, you're going for a temple shot. So what happens is that makes it very target specific for, for, for a specific intent. So the kata changes. So my kata changing is, is different. So if I've got a student that wants to do competition, I'll train them for competition. If I've got somebody who's, that's looking at self-defense at it, okay, now self-defense is self-explanatory. It's a different outcome that you want or a different result. So you mm -hmm. train it different. If I'm fighting for a competition and it's a point fighting, I'm going in there to fight for points. All right, so... It, 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 you know, that's, again, it's just a, another game that, you know, that you're very limited in your techniques. If you're doing a contact fighting, then what happens, you have to change your attitude for contact fighting. So the person in front of you is going to seriously hurt you and you're going to have to hurt them, you know, first before they hurt you. So the training is different in them. I think understanding the two, like the weapons that you're using to, to, to get the results that you want. Self-defense, you don't have gloves on. Like if you look at boxing before in the 1700s, if you look at the, um, you know, it, it, they, they didn't have gloves, so they didn't punch the head as much as they would today when they've got hand wraps and gloves. So it was different because if you're a prize fighter, you know you have to protect your hands. And that's your livelihood. Mm. So they, they changed a lot of other stuff. So they started using their forearms and their elbows in the striking to the head rather than do it. So I think it evolves. The, the It's a creature that evolves depending on what you're doing. It's a pretty simple question, but kata, people do it for different reasons. And, it, and you train specifically for, for the outcome. And, and it, maybe the best way to describe um, the actual uh, fighting portion of it, you know, like in point fighting, it's legal, legal technique to a legal scoring area with control. If you're doing it for kickboxing, it's a legal technique to a legal scoring area for power. If you're doing it in the street, 
you know, there's no, it, there's no legal or illegal. You hit the illegal techniques the best you can. With a simple understanding of anatomy, we know that, like, you know, that we don't have to make a fist to hit the head. If we we do a hard slap to the to the side of the ear, open hand slap, generally because there's nothing. That's the only thing. There, one of the only canals to the brain. You're either going to get a a coup or counter coup concussion out of it. And if not, the worst thing that's going to happen, you're going to have a perforated, or the, at least is a, just a perforated eardrum. So using the proper weapon for the proper results is really what you're, what, you're, what you're talking about. I know that sounds like it's off topic, but I don't really just do sport karate for this or that. I, I study the game. I take what I can from it. I understand that. That, uh, you know, like in ring sports, boxing is a sweet science. You learn how to do the ring with that. You, you use those weapons. But again, kata, if you're, if you're in Japan and you're performing and you're, you know, and you're doing it for the world championship, it's a lot different than the Okinawans train, you know, for the self-defense than trick conditioning the body. And they, they, they train specific to what they want. So I know that that's an open thing. But to, to actually understand it, you just have to change your frame of mind and change the frame of, of how you present it. It will change many, many different ways. So when somebody comes to me and they want to learn a kata, I just have to know what they want to learn it from. And I can really make a big connection between grappling. One example is, is in Taikyoko Shodan, where you do the big turn, you turn around. That's the same movement that you would make, do in judo for Taiyatoshi. So, I mean, it, but the difference is you've got a hold of a body, you're breaking them the same way. Um, so, so the kata can, can look really cool or it can look like, you know, it can be very effective. So, so I know I, I don't always just look at it as black and white on katas. Mm -hmm. I look specifically to the person and what they, they want out of it. I hear, always hear the training of an individual to what their their desired result oh, they want to get out of it. So if somebody comes to me and they, they want to just have some fun with it, that's great. If they want to learn self-defense, I, tra I train them different. So um, I, I hope that makes sense. You're seeing, yeah, so much smiling and nodding on this end. So yeah. I just want to ask a question then for some people who might not be as far along in their path or for people teaching where they might want to add that concept to their pedagogy. but you know, a yellow belt might not know what's best for themselves and they might not know how to distinguish um, the things you're saying. Like, how do yeah. I train one day for bunkai and the next day for sport? So how do you help either an instructor watching or a student watching understand what and when they should be looking for those things? That, that's a good question. Because, I mean, if you've got a, a six-year-old six uh, kid that comes walking to your club, you've got an 18-year-old kid that comes into your club, or you got a 62-year-old a person that's coming to your club, and you're going to teach them the same kata, are you going to teach it the same? The, the, the young, uh, I don't know what the, they really specifically want, they tell you, but you just help them along the way on their journey. Like, the, every, it, the training at all different ages and different levels is always different, depending on, on the specific goal they want to attain out of it. You know, so... Uh, if I if I've got uh, you know young kids they love competition I'll train them for competition if I've got somebody who's say an aging active adult and they just happen to be 
65 or 75 years old, they want to learn it. I, I know a couple of things that they're going to want to need. They're, they want to make sure that I'm doing it, that they're going to be able to have, uh, you know, the balance, because really what they're worried about is falling down. I'm going to make sure there's a washroom there because they want to make sure there's a washroom there too. So, so I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at what the, you know, planes of movement that I'm going to do with them specifically for that age. I, I, I know it's, uh, you know, I mean, you, <clears throat> you have to really ask the questions of what they want. Uh, you know, kids, it's very basic. They want the sport aspect of it. Somebody who, who's um, a little bit older may want to do it if you, if you, you know, and we're not even, if we've got women in the club, they want, they want a different goal on it. So we try to meet, you know, everything that they want the best we can. So and on, I do want to pop around the horn on this real quick. And I want to start with you, Sensei Dolphin, because I know you talked in one of our recent about, you know, when someone shows up asking them the, what they want to get out of the art. Yeah. And so I just want to know where you go with that, you know, different ages, same kata, different approaches or? Uh, same kata, same kata. They just may, I may do the bunkai a little bit better for uh, like different for somebody who's looking for more self-defense. Um if I've got, you know, somebody who's, you know, they wants to get into the sport aspect, I'll, I'll, I'll make it more dynamic for them, you know, so Man. I will. The katas, the katas, they, katas change anyways, you know, depending on the size of the person, the age of the person, you know, how, how long they've been doing it. Um, we can spend a lot of time on basics, 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 basics. And I think with, with a lot of, in sport, Fighting is really interesting because everything you learn in the first year in sports, you'll, you just learn to perfect it in the second year, third year, fourth year. You're doing the same stuff over and over. So sometimes the, the, the learning becomes stagnant, you know, because how, how many techniques do you, like, you know, if you, the, one thing that's never changed in sport karate, the, the number one scoring technique is a reverse punch. Now, is that because more people throw reverse punch? Or is that because the officials know how to score a reverse punch? But that's the number one that scores the most. So uh, what's the next one? You know, well, if you've got somebody who's actually a real good kicker, maybe it's a sidekick, you know, maybe whatever technique it is. But there's we actually, with the sports stuff, we wrote down the actual techniques that we found that scored and the highest percentages. And we could take an athlete, we could we could show them these are the ones you do. But they, they'll do those techniques for 10 years and it, to, to get them so the timing is perfect, everything's perfect. But they're still only working a handful of techniques. And, you know, so, I mean, and if you're looking at, the, you know, like ring sports, like if you're angling out or you're stepping one angle, angle right, angle in, you're in and out, out and ins, they're all, they're all the same. You know, like they're, once you, you master your footwork, your hand techniques, your, your slipping, there's only so many of them anyways. And then you do that. So then that, that now you got technical, tactical skills. You know, you got to make sure you've got the, you know, the conditioning to, to, to do the sport. And you've got to make sure you got the mental skills. So it, it, it's not as simple as just like it's a very complex thing because you can test people by those four elements. You can test them by their technical skills, their tactical skills, their um mental skills and their conditioning and you can find a weakness in it you can make it stronger and, and that's really what we do 
I mean, uh, you know, but if we're working, if we're just cookie cuttering everything all the time, exactly. And, you know, it's just, it's a cookie cutter McDonald's thing to get them out. That's, that's not really doing, doing the job we're, we're hired to do. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. The, like, again, that's, uh, you know, that's just my thoughts. Like, I mean, I, I, I find it that to simplify it, I would run them through, you know, yellow belts. They have to know three kata, um, 27 movements, Daikyoko Shodan, Shiohohai. That's it. That's all they have to know. Uh, plus, they, you have to be able to do their horse stance, front stance, front kick, uh, you know, front kick, round kick. And that's it. And then we we just progress it. But again, that's that's the starting point of the basics. But, you know, where they're going to go is where, you know, where they're probably be, uh, meant to be. So right on sensitive open. Let me throw that over to you. anything you want to add or, or, or to that conversation about different levels of different ages and how we apply the same type of teaching. I think karate is a physical thing. Martial arts is a physical thing. It's not a theoretical thing. So I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me if you're 80 or, or five, I agree with Sensei Atkinson, you know, you need a bathroom, you need basic things for people, but you got to start doing your basics. And I guess may, maybe where my thinking diverges a little bit is that um, I think as you progress, uh, you know, in the beginning, maybe in the first 10 years, you make a lot of exponential progress on the techniques that you're doing. Like, you know, maybe front kick, side kick, roundhouse kick, back kick, like one you're really good at. And, but I think if you stick with it, then to quote sense of legacy, you become kind of middle of the road. And some people take that as an insult, but I think that's a high compliment where it's, you kind of, you've hit a level of consistency with all of the things that you're doing. And then later, like there's, there's incremental progress, like just for instance, how you make a fist. I don't know. Did you just master that in the first year? And then you're not working on it 30 years later. I don't agree with that. I'm still working on how I form my fist. Like, Am I squeezing with my pinky finger? Like, you know, what's the difference when I, when I do this different type of squeeze? Like, does it ha have a different result? Sometimes it doesn't, but, and then I think the other benefits that you get come from the physical, right? Like if, <clears throat> are you going to become brave? Yeah. Are you going to become disciplined? Yes. Are you going to be more compassionate? hundred percent through the physical stuff that you learn and the consequences of fighting and doing your basics and doing kata. Anyway, that's where I go with it. Sensei. Sensei Suino? Yeah. People come in with all different gifts and all different challenges. And at least the way I teach is I, I want to open the door as wide as possible. I kind of like what Randy said earlier, right? You throw a bucket of water on them and let them drink as much as they can um, and encourage them to drink more, right? So I'm trying to open the gates, provide as much as I can. But then, listen, in reality, not everybody can be great. So if they are getting uh, fulfillment out of it and they're not a detriment to the dojo, then I want them to stay, work hard, learn at their own incremental pace. And I know that some percentage of them, and it's usually a small percentage, are going to get really, really good. Um, I'm okay with that. Everybody's getting something out of it, right? God loves everybody equally. Um, I don't think the path of enlightenment and the path of championship are the same. I think mm. you can get enlightened 
I think you can get enlightened if you're not an athlete. I think you can get enlightened if you have one leg and you're struggling to learn karate or judo. Um, but I don't think you can be a champion with those challenges, right? So um, I try to open the door for everybody and they kind of uh, rise to their own level. Right on, Hanchi Legacy. What do you what do you think about all this? It's it's opened up to a big chat, so go wherever you want with it. Okay, well, personally, the way I, I look at it is that uh, in the old days, on that physical level, the, the Okinawans didn't use the second best techniques or, uh, you know, these techniques that didn't work. It was like, you know, it was life and death. If you lived that night and you weren't buried in the beach, you did good. And you're up the next day to same, face the same thing. So uh, I like the traditional karate, uh, the classical karate, because you get several eras of people's thinking handed down to you. And not just one look at idiot, like some young guy who, who at a sec first band gets his black belt and goes out and opens a club. He has really no understanding. And that is the key word. There is no understanding of what martial arts really is. You have to look at everything that is taught up to you, right? And you have to trust that style. That style, usually those people have covered everything. Few things need to be changed because it's modern, a little bit like, uh, say, hockey, because we're, we're a bit of a hockey uh, country over here. It's just imagine putting... Uh, Connor Mc, er, McDavid in a rink in 1925, he'd score 40 goals a game. So <clears throat> you need to have that progression, that, that bringing the art through and the understanding and everybody puts their little bit of knowledge in there to make it better. And if a child comes in, say a young person comes in that's seven years old, or again, a 65 year old person that comes in, I teach them sure new because it contains everything. And even in the following years, when you get older and you do white crane, that's, uh, it even enhances your, your martial art more. So I'm, I'm more of a classical stylish and believe in the style person and that it covers everything. Thanks, Anshi. Love this, these, love this breadth of perspective. Um, Sensei Atkinson, it's time for your 10 questions. Uh -oh. These are 10 questions that we ask all our guests, yeah. and we ask that you answer as impulsively as you can, but then expand as you wish. <coughs> Sensei, what is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? The most effective move in a martial art? Uh, the gift of gab. <laughs> love it love it uh, you, you know it's the best weapon to to diffuse diffuse anything um who is the most influential martial artist in your life oh man oh you know there's so many people that have influenced me in so many ways well i gotta say that that in in martial arts, probably uh, Dave Chong, you know, because he, you know, he he gave he he taught me a lot of different things. But also with traditional karate, I would say Ron Yamanaka. 
Um, I had, I've had the, the benefit of ha having, uh, you know, people who are really good. If, in traditional martial arts or traditional karate, uh, you know, he's one of the best friends I have. And, uh, you know, so, you know, and, and, and he's, you know, if I go off course a little bit, he's, he's more than happy to slap me back in, in my position, right? And, and Dave Chong has been a really good mentor to me over the years, right? So, I mean, each phase of my life I was going through, he was, uh, you know, he had already gone experienced it and, you know, he passed his knowledge down, you know? So. Right on. Who do you believe is the most influential martial artist of all time and why? Oh man, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Well, for promotion uh, of, of the martial arts, I would say Bruce Lee. Um, you could say for influence, it would be, could it be Funakoshi, but Funakoshi was, you know, like maybe Funakoshi's wife. How's that? Better still. She was the one that stayed in Okinawa, ran the schools. She was the one that took care of all the, uh, you know, the ancestors of their, their, um, the graves. She was the one that did a lot of legwork, you know, while he was in Japan. So there you go. Right on. Um, what excites you most about the next five years of your training? Uh, uh, you know, at this point, I, I'm not looking five years. I'm, I'm doing year by year. But uh, I, I'm really excited about, you know, what's happening with it right now. Um, as most of you guys know, I'm involved with WACO. Um, we've been shortlisted for the 2028 Olympics. Uh, in, in the spring, if 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 kickboxing is brought into it, it's gonna it's gonna change everything. It, you know, the, the the opportunities for people are are just amazing. That so now now saying that, you know the you know thank goodness uh, you know and, and it's probably the Europeans that worked hardest on getting it in. So you know thanks to them for for having the insight and the vision to, uh, to move the sport to where it's supposed to go. So. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get there? <laughs> All right. But oh, I'm going to have to think about that for a second. Hmm. Uh, well, I hope he, he has a return um policy that he can send me back that here for a couple more years but that's what i think <laughs> um do you have a favorite film and television martial artist a famous film um i used to have you know i used to like all the action unboxed and stuff but i was doing a coaching course with uh, rick joslin and he said it wasn't a martial art one that he uh, but he he said it was a movie, uh, movie that he really thought and I thought about it because I, you know, I've watched the film, you know, tons of times and it was Braveheart. So I'm going to say Braveheart. All right. He, uh, like I said, it may not be the martial arts, but if Rick Joslin can say it, I can say it. <laughs> yeah. Big fan of that answer. Yeah. Um, is there a martial artist living or dead in all of recorded history who you'd like to train with the most? There's, uh, you know, I've had so many big influences uh, on, on my life. I mean, iconic people. I mean, it's hard to, to to say whether there'd be one person that you would love to train with because I've 
been so gifted. I mean, yeah, I mean, name every icon and every martial art. John Park Su had such a big influence on me. Soroka had it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had a big one, Monty Gast, Bob Daglish. I mean, I could go on and on and on having and, and access to so many great people, you know. I mean, no, I just say I, I'm blessed with what the ones I've already had. Um, if everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they train or not, what benefit would they be getting? Uh, well, I, I train it more for, it, it's become a, it's more of a lifestyle thing for me. So, I mean, I've actually been very lucky to have, you know, good health and happiness from it and, and lots of prosperity. So I, I, I would say that would be the answer. Yeah. Um, our last two questions come as a pair. What is your greatest achievement and your greatest regret? Yeah, well, I guess uh, the greatest achievement was I probably, you know, for some reason got my wife to marry me. That would be uh, what I would say was one of my biggest ones. My biggest regret was all those years with the competition. I never, like with any podium I was ever on, I never looked out in the podium at the moment. I always, what I did is I, I was always looking for the next one. Talk to us about the kickboxing. Talk to us about the, the podiums and talk to us about the, the WACO organization and talk to us about the Olympics and kickboxing. Well, it, it's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, with me, I'm just one spoke in the wheel. Like, the, you know, the, you know the, the, I'm very low down the totem pole. I just, you know, I, I was very lucky uh, to train with a guy named uh, Osamo Nawaz. And he is an amazing guy. He's a PhD in, uh, sorry, he's uh, got a master's in kinesiology, master's in physiology. He's got um, a PhD in education. And, and, you know, like he trained with me years ago. He started off with Shintani, I think, was it? Uh, anyways, he, uh, he, he trained and he, he trained with me and we got talking and he got me involved with it. And so um, I actually was in uh, Germany in 91 or 92, can't remember which one it was, the uh, World Kickboxing Championships, right, with the ISKA. Anyways, he, uh, we got involved with it. And, you know, the, at first the vision, you know, you, you got to look at the vision of where the sport's going. I mean, you know, it's not... Uh, to get to the Olympics, a lot of things had to come in place. So you had to set up a PSO in, in, in Ontario first. And now we've got PSOs across the, the country. Uh, you know, we've got TSOs in the territories. So they've got enough now to do things like the Canada Games. Um, to, to go into the Canada Games, and, and if you're a rated athlete, you know, there's government support. And there's government support for, for young athletes in all the sports. So let's take uh, speed skating. You know, I remember years ago, they, they were allocated $4 million a year to train their athletes. So that means people who were actually doing these things were going to get paid to do it. Their coaches were paid to, to coach them. 
they, you know, if, to, in order to go to, to the Olympics, they, they were on a full ride. Um, that's just one of the things. So you can imagine you, now you're training athletes for it and you've got five people inside and that's a pretty decent income coming in, you know, because to train an athlete, it costs a lot of money. So anyways, that's one of the benefits. Um, um, it's, they, it's really strict. The health and safety issues of, 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 of the sport part of it are, are sometimes neglected. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? All right, so uh, when Ken Hayashi took over the, the contact ring sports, he took it from, a Clyde, from Clyde Gray. And the reason Clyde Gray was a big scandal on it and what was happening is he was putting fighters into the fights that were, were, were at risk, let's say. You know, you know, somebody's had some concussions and everything and they, he'd put them in. So the promoters were doing really well, but the actual athletes were 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 treated like cattle. And so amateur sports are are are, are much different than professional sports, mind you. Amateur sports are, are where athletes can can do it. So if we get into the Olympics, these kids that are in the club now that are like 15 years old could have a chance to compete at the Olympics. Ooh. All right. You know, they could be 15, 16. Uh, when we first started doing the kickboxing, the average age was 37 <laughs> of the athlete going into it. Today, they're 15 years old. So they've, what's happened is, is, is that as a group, we've been able to, to get the, the, the athletes training in the right way. The training is, 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 you know, it's still the same thing. Just what we were talking about with the karate training you know, the basics have to be there, the basic fundamentals. The, for the most part, it's, it's based just like karate. So you do a, a lunge punch, you do a reverse punch. Okay, so you do a jab, you do a cross. You step forward with a, with a lunge punch, you step forward with a jab. So you go in with a jab, go in with a cross, you come back. So you do your in and outs. It's, it's virtually done the same way. So you can take a beginner and, and, and work through the basics. So anyways, um, PSOs are, their job is to um, make sure the athletes are getting the proper training. The coaches are getting the proper, their, their, the education of the, the coaches and the um, education of officials. That's what they oversee. Um, they oversee the medicals. They, you know, in that type of sport, when you're doing international, medicals are, are are part of it. So each athlete has to do a, a medical every year. Uh, criminal background checks have to be done on all the coaches so that the you know vulnerable, vulnerable persons um, um, criminal background check. So what does that mean? It means that if the you know you've got predators in your sport, they're not coaching because that's a really big thing today in coaching. You're seeing all the lawsuits are coming by. Um, regulate the bouts so that people aren't getting hurt. There's, you know, that uh, boxing match in, um, where was it, uh, Quebec, I think it was Quebec City, the guy went in and he died. Is that preventable? Um, we had one guy who went in, there was a guy who went down to the States, fought in a match and, uh, and died. Um, it, it, simple education with the coaches and everything would have, the, the young man would have been alive today. So, so it's a little different. There's a lot of difference in the education. The health and safety is, is followed up. 
everything is followed up. Um, so I, it, it's it's a it's a great sport. So then, my question for you, and then we can go around the horn on this one, is what do you perceive would be the greatest benefit to martial arts as a whole for kickboxing to hit twenty twenty eight? Um. Well. What would be the greatest, can you re, re, do that question again? Please? What would be the greatest benefit overall to martial arts for kickboxing to show up in 2028? Well, you know, as a guy that, that saw the very first, well, I actually in, in Toronto, I was actually in the very first kickboxing match. So, I mean, like in, uh, it was, in, I think it was 76 before they banned it. Um, they, and the guy who won it was a guy named Joe Lafitte. Um, and out of Hamilton, there was a uh, Jack, Kruger, I think he was in second, and Nick Carriero was in third place on it. It was done like a tournament. Um, it um, that's where it started. Uh, it was a just a, a thought, and for it to actually grow the way it's gone with international, it's now a, a top five sport. We do the Ontario Winter Games. The Ontario <coughs> Games send one hundred and fifty kids at least to these uh, Ontario winter games, which are funded, the under 18s. Um, and, and let's see, we've got the under game. I just lost my try of thought there, guys. Give me a second here. Oh, that's okay. Um, let's go around the horn while you regather. Sensei Dauphin, what, what do you think would be a benefit for all martial arts or stand-up martial arts to, to see kickboxing in the Olympics? That's something you'd want to see? Do you care? Oh yeah, I'd love to see it. Like I love kickboxing. So, I mean, one benefit for me personally would just be drinking a beer, eating some nachos and watching it happen. Like, <clears throat> and I'd be cheering for Canada, but I think for martial arts, your question, what is the benefit? I would hope it would pique some interest and people would find their ways into dojos and actually learn classical martial arts, not sport martial arts. That to me would be, a great benefit to martial arts is if it was in the Olympics. Like I think karate being in the Olympics was, was great for martial arts to get people in. Um, yeah. So I guess simple answer. Right on. And what about you, Hanchi legacy, especially given that you literally fought a kickbox style as part of that first blood and guts Canadian wave. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I don't know who, um, Kai Shin Sensei, his name slipped my mind. Monty Guest? Monty Guest, yeah. He put, I fought in one of his uh, full contact things at Yamut Casino. Um, again, it's great to be an Olympian. And uh, anybody who gets into karate or kickboxing into there, it would make people who practice what we people have, give them the opportunity to become Olympian, probably the greatest single thing that you can do as personally for a human being. But um, that's about it for me too, because uh, from what I hear a lot of times is um, they're trying to put what martial arts should and could and wouldn't be able to do in the Olympic guy's hands where it doesn't belong there. It belongs in the guy's who train all their lives in martial arts and teach a style and keep the traditional martial arts up. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm for it. It's great. 
Yeah. And I just wanted to say, Gary, uh, that was perfect. That, you know, if I could have explained it better than that, I don't think anybody can. And I, and, and I think what's happened is that, that we've done the, um, like myself personally, I love traditional karate. I train it all the time. It, you know, my body actually responds to it a lot better than uh, the other. And, and I don't think we ever lose that because it's actually just a different martial art. It's just a, you know, a different style of martial art. It's, 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 it's its own creature. It's not, it's, it, it's not traditional karate. It never will be, but it's kickboxing. Thank you. Sensei Suido? So uh, getting a martial art into the Olympics can be incredible. Look what it's done for judo, uh, right? A worldwide sport practiced by hundreds of thousands of people. And judo has grown in as a martial art in amazing ways. Um, but there are a lot of rule sets created for Olympic judo and the offshoots of Olympic judo that are created by the people who are the administrators, the suits rather than the, than the old masters who still train. So what Hanshi Legacy said is really true. You want the, you want the real, the legit long-term practitioners in there. And for God's sakes, don't have a rule set like there was in karate last time where some knucklehead puts his face in front of somebody's foot and wins the gold medal. I don't ever want to see that happen again. <laughs> well i actually did want to chip in on that and say i, I agree with you sensei suna that's a perfect segue to my thoughts which is simply that the one thing i like about the kickboxing is to me it's a clear like separate thing in a way but it's fed by what we do so it's not like like it's a sport rule set coming out of stand-up arts and you can then get the benefit of karate and even shotokan versus shorin versus taekwondo feeder um and that can get exciting, but in no way does it then diminish any of those arts because it's not actually one of them. So they all benefit, but you've got a clear sport rule set with knockouts, et cetera. Well, where I would like to say there is in the old days, you know, before that, and I'm not going to name any styles. I'm just going to say once I remember people laughing at me because I took karate during the days of Bruce Lee and all that. And this is better and that's better and that's better. Just let me say to those people, um, look at the MMA and see who's in there now. That's all. Sensei Eckerson, anything, anything you want to uh, come back around on just because we sort of went around the horn and took everybody uh, else's thoughts there? Absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, great opinions, you know, I love the opinions and, and, and the responses. I mean, you know, it's, that's what it is. I think, I think we, I, I maybe miss mentioning about kickboxing is that kickboxing is actually would be, if I made a comparison, it would be to gymnastics and because kickboxing what, what uh, kickboxing in the Olympics would be K1 fighting, uh, full contact kickboxing, low kick. All right, so that's uh, low kick, full contact. All right, then they, they you have, you know, they have, there's a semi-contact one as well. But then you have your tatami events. You have a kick light program, a light kick program. Uh, one is, a, it's just, you know, it's like 
stand-up kickboxing uh, but it's uh you, one you can do a low kick one you can do everything about the waist then you actually have point you know and the point is is is, is defined as legal technique to legal scoring area area with reasonable power so it's the same point fighting that you you actually see then they actually have they have um creative forms creative weapons uh they have let's see um musical weapons music parts and, and everybody thinks well you know creative it's not traditional it's not this the actual when you officiate something like that it has to have the power of karate so when you're doing a your your kata yeah you can do a couple of acro moves in the whole thing but you're not your your biggest points are actually on being able to do an actual front stance with a reverse punch like you would any other kata and so it, there's a lot of misconceptions because people look at it and they think uh you know this is it, it's not traditional karate because it's not but it's very exciting because if you don't have a traditional karate background in it when you do the when you do the forms you're not going to win and with the weapons weapons are all japanese weapons pretty well you know so you know the bow staff is the bow staff but there you know there's no edge weapons and stuff so what happens is that you'll have like a number of rings going on with tatami events they've got that covered they've got all the ring sports covered right up to k1 and, and so i think it'd be very exciting so it's not just like you know you know like what we sometimes perceive as kickboxing you know from from the 70s or the 80s and everything above the waist and they're, you know, they're sweeping and the K1, they're hooking the feet. They're like, I mean, knees are good. You can knee a guy in the head. I mean, it's, it's hard fighting. So it's, it's pretty interesting because if you only look at one part of it and earlier, I wanted to correct that like Veronica and I in Ontario took over this, this task before COVID and stuff like that. We were, we we're going to do it. And, and she's done a really good job with it now, but the Titani events, I have, you know, you have to give credit where it's due, and it's the guys from Quebec City. They're, they have the best tatami people. They're setting, they're setting up their PS, they've set up their PSO in Quebec, David and the um, Samuel, and that they're, they're just amazing guys. They do the tatami. They've been doing it forever. They run the Quebec Open. They, uh, you know, uh, one of the Nazca tournaments and stuff like that. They're, they're, they're just amazing. Like, our tatami events with the point fighting and the katas or, or the I should say forms and the weapons and everything have uh, you know it, they're world-class world-class competitors in that type of fighting and they're they they're responsible now for training the the tatami team so I wanted to make sure I made that straight that's Thank fantastic you. to make sure that everyone gets their due um, oh, they're amazing those guys you know yeah. like they they've taken the tatami part because they've, they've been doing the nasca tournaments and stuff like that forever the wkc tournaments and stuff and and they they they've got the majority of the point fighters so right on um sensei time is real and we hate that on this show okay but we're we're in, we're in our wind down phase and so what we're going to do is we're going to do what we call round the horn so we're going to start with hanchi legacy and then go around and we're going to chat a bit about our time with you and then the last word is going to go to you and you can go out on whatever you like 
Okay. Um, but I'm going to throw it to Hanshi Legacy and then talk about our, our time chatting with you tonight. Yes, thank you very much for coming to our program. I remember seeing you way back a long time ago. So I think we've known each other for quite a few years. And, yeah. yeah. And you, I really like your answers and your, your calmness in your answers. By that, I mean, um, they weren't just uh, thought of the, at this second. I know that they were uh, mature answers and I appreciate that very much. I see you again. Thank you, Hanchi. Sensei Suino? <laughs> yeah, listen, anybody who got their martial arts started in judo is okay by me. Uh, I, loved, I loved your ability to talk so knowledgeably about uh, karate, about kata, about kickboxing, and kind of uh, 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 it's, it, it was a seamless walk through your experiences all the way from uh, uh, the early days to, uh, to today and the conversation about the Olympics. Um, a cool perspective that we haven't had before on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sensei Suino. Sensei Dauphin? Yeah, again, I want to thank Sensei Atkinson for coming on. It's nice chatting with him a couple of weeks ago and really happy to have him come on Punch Kick Show Chat. Very de deserved to be on our show as well uh, with the other names that we've had on. So, uh, but a couple of thoughts, uh, Sensei Atkinson, from what we talked about. I don't think uh, Sensei Frank Hadashita's name is mentioned on this call enough. I, I often go into Hadashita martial arts and I see his picture standing there. And we've actually bugged his nephew, Roman, to come on here, a former Olympian. Still can't, if you can help with the carrot to get him on the show, that would be great. We'd love to get him on here. Um, yeah, uh, I liked what you said about uh, what kept you in martial arts was the feeling of community and family that that's what kept you there. And I think that's the same for me, for sure. Like I still love the feeling of community and family that I get from martial arts. And I don't think I get it anywhere else. Maybe not even in my own family sometimes as much as I do from martial arts. I want to clarify that my immediate family all do martial arts. It's my extended family that don't. And so sometimes I feel more distant from them. Um, Again, like Sensei Suino said, just another person like uh, Sensei Bill, Superfoot Wallace, or Sensei Sloki, or Sensei Merriman, another person who started in judo, right? That it just goes to speak to the <laughs> martial arts in Canada and where it started and where it is now. Uh, I really like the thoughts, uh, Sensei Atkinson, that you provided for um, competition, kata versus application, and what just basically, it's very simple. What is the purpose of why you're doing it, right? And uh, train specifically for what you want. I, I really like that. That's something I'm going to go away and think about. Uh, your effective move, the gift of gab, which I'm going to change to being articulate. <laughs> right? And then uh, David Chong and Ron Yanunaka being, those are names that I've heard a lot in my, in my lifetime in martial arts. And uh I think it was really cool when you said that your biggest regret was that, you know, you were always looking for the next podium. That's, that's very interesting to think about that. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. Um, thanks. Sensei, uh, Sensei, I just want to, you know, again, it, it's been touched on a little bit. 
really the way you answered that Katakubite question, I mean, I know you, you said it wasn't quite, you know, a brief answer or whatever, but I'm going to go away and I'm going to think about a lot of what you said. And I really loved just how, how actually simply you broke that down. And, and I loved also when we talked to uh, uh, Robert's question about style and you just said, you know, it's, it's the art of you. And I really heard that. And I wrote that down and I can't wait to go think about what that means in the center of my art and of my arts. Um, so I just want to leave it there, but those, those are things that I'm not just going to leave there. I'm going to take with me this week and this month and really, and really ponder and put into some practice. Um, the last word goes to you before a little housekeeping after Sensei Atkinson. What do you want to say? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll address Frank Hatashida. All right. Frank Hatashida, uh, you know, was the one of the biggest influences on myself. Um, I had a very similar history that uh, Mr. Sloki had with you guys. My father and Frank Katasha became friends because we were a judo family. And so I think they had a, a friendship as well as, you know, I had the opportunity on his monthly Shi'ais, we went to just about every one of them to uh, uh, do a little combat with his son, Ricky. Tashida. So we were always in the same division, beating the snot out of each other. And so I had that experience growing up. Um, and, and, and our fathers got along a little bit with that. Um, as far as, so you got your Frank and Tashida thing okay now, or you want some more? Because I got some good stories. <laughs> um, I think, I think, you know, I hope I didn't mislead and say that like like my background is still traditional karate uh, that's where it's like a, a traditional karate traditional judo I, I was lucky to build a solid foundation each one of them and I've been able to expand on it and, and I always uh, want to find the similarities between the styles and never not necessarily the differences because mm. They, they, you know, different guys have different philosophies on it. And you were, we were talking about it earlier about, you know, a hand position on a punch and everything. Interesting thing is, is whether you've got a hand wrap on, you know, or whether you've got, uh, you know, it, it's in a glove, it changes your, your fist. And I had a, a dear friend of mine, it was a friend of mine, he used to say, when you go to the head, use the soft technique, when you go to the body, you do the hard technique. So in other words, you punch to the punch the gut, open hand to the head. Um, it, it, it's, it's one I live by. Um, and I just really am really, really grateful that I've been able to, to take the passion of my life, make a living out of it, put my family, my kids through university with it, or help put them through university with it, I should say, because they did all the work. Um, I'm so lucky to have such a great family and so many martial art people that, that I can call up anytime, you know, from, so that's where I get my lessons. And by the way, one of my biggest lessons came from a seven-year-old in a karate tournament. I asked him what his technique was. He, he, he fought, he was a white belt at the time. He, everybody that vision with a white belt. Uh, he had a white belt and what did he, he said, he said, I circled around, circled around, circled around. When they stopped, I attacked. One of the best lessons I have ever had. So uh, thank you guys for everything. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had a lot of fun tonight.
Um, I should have did a shout out for my brother too. Like, you know, he's definitely the, uh, probably the most important guy because he was the guy that used to put the beats on me at home and put the beats on me in the dojo. So. Right on. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Sensei. It's been such an honor. And uh, I'm just going to throw it to Sensei Dolphin to talk to us about uh, our upcoming week and then the new year. And then I'll bring us back home with a few thanks. Yeah. So this, uh, the next call is going to be uh, host chat, which is always fun for us. And if you're coming on, we like to turn your camera on if you have questions and which I also love always. And then next year we got a bunch of names lined up like Stephen K Hayes, Billy Blanks. We're going to have um, Sensei Atkinson's brother on next year. Uh, yeah, we got, <clears throat> they're lining up, we're stacking them up. And uh, one thing I just want to say, Sean, is, you know, go to the, our website. We have the yeah. new website, right? Punchkickchokechat.com. We've got a section there. If you want us to be talking to somebody or you have a topic you want us to explore, send it in to us uh, and let us get on the hunt for that. Thanks, Sensei Dauphin. And by the way, you can see uh, Sensei Laura Civic, a friend of the show, who just threw out, uh, thank you very much. Great show, Hanchi. Alex is so knowledgeable and talented, a great mentor for us. Um, so thank you for that. And also you can go check out their episode. It's up on our Punch Kick Show chat. Um, I just want to say thanks to Robert Schlumsky, Justin Shea, Andre Sedeshev, Alden Adair, Jesse Vlevitao. And is it did uh, Sensei Dan Holland work the show tonight? He did. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. Our team is growing because uh, as we grow, we need help. And it's a really beautiful thing that people are filling in the gaps who you don't necessarily see. The show does not exist without them. We're so grateful. Thank you. Good night, everybody. We'll see you in a week for our host chat. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sensei. Good night, Thanks, Sensei. Sensei. It's been a Bye. pleasure. Thanks, guys.